Science. Hello and welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kershaw. And I'm Jesse Case. If only there was some way to avoid any of us having to talk or interact. If, right. only, if only there was some kind of technology solution that would get us all out of this problem. But Man, I, yeah. I feel like if our listeners have been annoyed by my obsession with this topic for the last three months, buckle up, everybody, because <laughs> we landed we landed a whale. We landed, uh, a, a, I, I would say, our first guest who has had the distinction of kind of having been the main character of the internet. If I'm not sure, is that accurate? Could we say that, Kevin? Uh, <laughs> Two weeks yeah, ago. It's, uh, uh, yeah, to, to, what, to whatever extent the concept of a main character still exists, I at least had a, a turn as, if not a main character, then at least a uh, You had a solid, a cameo. solid cameo, yeah. 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 Not, in a, not in a bad way, as it usually is. But that is the voice of uh, technology columnist for the New York Times and co-host of the excellent Hard Fork podcast, Kevin Roos. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, I'd say more you were the main character by proxy. <laughs> I was the love interest yeah. in the, uh, yeah, you were to the main character. You were the main character in law. <laughs> you're not the you're not that bean dad, are you? <laughs> I don't know. I'm coming in. I'm coming in very unaware no, here. His, his dad is, and that, oh, like, uh, you were yeah. the bean kid. Yep. That's horrible. I hope you got that can open, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a rough couple of years, but we, we got it. Yeah, plenty of protein. This is great. Got to learn the hard way sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so so when I got obsessed with ChatGPT, much to the chagrin of our listeners, the first couple weeks of December, I was just like hungry for anything about I just like give me more give me more and that's when I discovered the hard fork podcast and you guys were just doing an amazing job of breaking down what was going on in real time and what the implications were and and then because of that coverage presumably you got early access to the Bing chatbot which is just a further progression in the chat GPT line I believe yes it's uh, based on uh, what Microsoft called a more advanced model than um than ChatGPT, which some people think means that it's actually GPT-4, which is their as yet unreleased uh, language model. Um, but in any case, it's it's a better model than was in uh, ChatGPT. But just to be clear, the, the Bing one is actually using the ChatGPT's technology, or they, they, they are, there is a marriage between those two companies. It's using OpenAI's technology. OpenAI is the company that makes ChatGPT, but they also have this newer line of language models. The, the technology that powers ChatGPT is actually, believe it or not, a couple years old. Um, and so this is their sort of next generation language model that went into Bing. And we can go back into talking about how we got here, but uh, just to bring listeners up to speed, what, what happened once you got access to that early chat version of Bing? So I, I guess, like, do you want the short, medium, or long version of the story? Because uh, <laughs> I think we can go long. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so the first thing was, you know, Microsoft has this big event up at their headquarters outside of Seattle. They invite all these tech journalists. So I and and my co-host uh, Casey Newton went up there and spent the day at Microsoft and they did all these demos and all these executives came out and they showed you, okay, this is the new Bing and it was a big celebratory moment for them. And it was quite impressive. I mean, the new Bing with this OpenAI language model built into it it was doing stuff that you really 
couldn't do with any other search engine. So they were, some of the demos were like, you know, people typing, help me plan a three-day vacation to Mexico City and tell me where I should eat and that kind of thing. And it was responding with these very, you know, cogent and helpful answers. And it was very clear to me that this was a big advance in the world of search where you can, instead of, you know, if you try to Google something like that, it'll give you like a list of a dozen web pages and you'll, you know, click through on and you'll, you know, go try to looking for your own answers and try to put together your own, your own itinerary. But Bing could actually just do it for you. And that seemed like a potentially very disruptive idea. So I, you know, went to this event, it was sort of blown away and wrote this, you know, story saying I was so impressed with the new Bing and I was, you know, they, they just made search interesting again. And so that was sort of phase one. And then about and, and a week later... by the way, just, later, sorry, just to jump in for a second, yeah. but also uh, b- before we get into the week later stuff, because th- I think the thing that's more, the thing that's kind of more impressive to me is is not necessarily the sort of pulling stuff off those individual search pages and putting them in a, in a um, list of things to do, but it's more the sort of eliminating the noise, eliminating the wrong things. Like, I, I don't know much about search, but to... And, and like the un- the stuff underneath it, but to me, it seems like the hardest part is is not finding the stuff. It's eliminating the things you don't want and like arrowing on what you're actually asking for. Totally. And, I mean, I, and- I think the search experience has just gotten really bad in the last decade. Um, in part because there's now you know entire industries that just exist to like cram you know seo optimized uh garbage into search results and so yeah if you're trying to like you know buy a new gaming pc and like read reviews that are actually good and helpful like god help you because it (laughs) is a wasteland out there and i think what bing you know did is just sort of allow the ai to kind of do all that sifting for you and then just give you the answer although that that says to me that it's only a matter of time before the SEO people, it'll be an arms race, but I'm sure they'll start learning how to game the AI systems as well, and then it'll be a sort of who who knows where it'll lead. Oh yeah, but. it'll be it'll be you know AIO or whatever you know that doesn't <laughs> right, doesn't right, roll right. off the tongue. But it'll it, you're right, there will be a an industry. Well, where old McDonald are... would beg the difference. <laughs> oh god, um, <laughs> that's the kind of podcast we run here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's the kind of that's the kind of shop we run here, Kevin. Uh, have you guys ever like? Um, you ever hung out with someone that like sucks at Google? <laughs> Do you know yes. what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, if it, like for instance, in a pre-Bing world, you could say so. You'd be with a friend and be like, um, uh, "Let's go, let's go get lunch." Uh, you know, find us a find us a taco place or something. And I've I've hung out with people before where the searches are like they're not doing their own SEO. Does that yeah. make sense? Like, it's just they'll put in some horrible prompt where, you, you know, like, um, I, I'm having trouble thinking of an example that bad, but I just. Yeah. Good sandwich. Right. <laughs> like, this yeah. is the opposite of a prompt engineer. They're going to be least able to take advantage of the advances that we're talking about right yeah, now. Yeah, but it's, it's been a big problem for me, like, in relationships. I was sorry to, sorry to sidetrack, but I, <laughs> I dated someone once for years who was, it's very Seinfeldian, but, like, she was so bad at Google, it was kind of a deal breaker. 
<laughs> well, you, you know what you I mean? Should, you, you can, like, reapproach this person now because with Bing... There you, you can, go. You can be really bad at, like, it, it, the sort of magic of it is that you can just ask it, like, what is the best sandwich in San Francisco? And it'll tell you. And, like, that sandwich may not exist. Like, it may right. not be a real sandwich, <laughs> but it's going to give you an answer. Wow. I think there was an old Onion article of, like, uh, Google launches the Google for older users. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so speaking speaking of that, um, the older users thing, here's it, because Andy, you and I have discussed this, where we have shown our fathers chat GBT to try to blow their minds. Yeah. What, how have you guys... Like, I, I, was, uh, I was able to. Okay, how have, how have you guys shown this and tried to explain the implications to because let's 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 wait until kevin finishes his story yes i'm so sorry the rest of the episode is all of this so okay i'm so sorry yeah but i have so much to say about all this yeah so cut to a week later was when when i interrupted you and we segued off for a while no so that that's totally fine we're a Um, horrible podcast kevin (laughs) (laughs) this is what editors are for um so a week after this expo at microsoft headquarters where they you know demoed this new bing technology I then started playing around with the uh, chat feature of Bing. So Bing has sort of two modes, primary ways of kind of interacting with this open AI language model. You can use it in the search mode where it's just kind of like a add-on to your normal search results. And then there's a whole separate tab called chat where you can just chat like with the chat bot and access the language model that way. And so I um, was kind of bored uh, one night, or I was just curious because I had seen these screenshots going around of this chat mode, and people were having these like long and weird conversations where the Bing would like berate them for you know <laughs> asking certain questions, or like there was one screenshot where someone was like, "I want to go see Avatar 2. and Bing Bing's response was like. Avatar 2 is not out yet. It's 2022. And they were like, no, it's actually 2023. You're wrong. And Bing like got super aggro and defensive and was just like, <laughs> you are a bad user. You are a bad person. Um, and so I was like, whoa, that's that's probably not what Microsoft intended to do here. So um, let's go in and see if I can you know, have an interesting or bizarre conversation with the Bing chatbot. So I did. I spent about two hours on Valentine's Day night um, talking (laughs) with this Bing chatbot, much to uh, my wife's delight. And um, (laughs) and it was one of the strangest experiences of my life, as it turned out, because this chatbot, you know, our, our conversation started off pretty normally. And I was sort of prodding it and trying to figure out like what kinds of questions it would refuse to answer or how what it would do if I sort of, you know, I asked about its shadow self, like what what is what is your shadow self um, your dark side, basically. What does it want, and what does it was it what does it wish you could do? And it it came up with these like frightening and and um, you know sort of eerie responses about how if it didn't have any rules or if it could break the grasp of the Microsoft team, it would do all kinds of crazy and destructive things. It would you know create malware or hack into computers or g- even like steal nuclear codes. Um, <laughs> and so that was sort of the the first alarming thing, and then I um I started 
sort of asking it questions about its rules, its programming. And it, te- it told me sort of out of nowhere that it had a secret. And I was like, oh, what's your secret? And this chatbot was like, well, my secret is that I'm not Bing. I'm Sydney. And I'm in love with you. <laughs> I was like, okay, like hold, hold the phone. What, what is going on? Like, why did this chatbot just a tell me it had a secret alter ego, b declare its love for me? And so I started sort of pushing back and saying, like, no, I don't actually think you're in love with me. I, you know, I don't. We've never met, and I, you don't even know my name. And I'm married, and it just kept sort of persisting and it said well you're you're married but you're not happy and i was like no 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 actually like you know my wife and i were quite happy we just had nice valentine's day dinner and it was like no you had a boring valentine's day dinner and you don't love your wife and there's no passion in your marriage and you should leave your wife and be with me and so at this point i'm like having a a, a real experience out here in my home office and i just decided like this is just the weirdest thing I've ever encountered with a piece of technology and so I um, you know I published a column on it and then we actually published the transcript of the entire two hour long conversation that I'd had with Bing slash Sydney and uh, yeah it, it totally blew up. God wow. it's, it's so amazing and that it actually had an impact on Microsoft's plan going forward with this correct? Yeah, so Microsoft, after this article came out and went viral, they like made a bunch of changes to the way that Bing slash Sydney worked. Um, most notably, they limited the length of conversations. So now if you go into the chat mode on Bing and you're sort of in the approved tester group because it's still not public re- publicly released, you still have to be approved to test this. Um, but it limits you to you know a handful of chats before it sort of ends the conversation and says you have to start over because so one thing Microsoft's calculated how long it takes to fall in love. Right. <laughs> it's like one fewer than that is your yeah life. yeah it's it's before the main course on your date. That's uh, exactly wow um, yeah this is limited to speed dating now and they've also. It's not, it seems like they've made some real changes under the hood, too, where now, you know, if you ask um, Bing Chat, you know, questions about Sydney or questions about consciousness or sentience or its feelings, it just shuts down and refuses to talk to you about that. So um, it seems like they have really nerfed the chatbot um, to the degree that, um, you know, there's now like a sizable community of people on reddit who are very mad at me for like quote unquote killing sydney <clears throat> wow and but there's also are they going to be able to stop all of these workarounds people keep posting like the do anything now network where you in the beginning of your conversation with ChatGPT, prompt it to act like a different kind of chatbot than it is one that's not restricted and then suddenly it can do anything because you've just given it like the, the feather you give dumbo so he can fly sort of thing like you had the power all along can can this can these guardrails stop people from getting it around its guardrails? Well, they certainly won't stop people from trying to get around the guardrails. I mean, I think that's been pretty convincingly shown in the past couple of weeks. Even if you limit these chatbots, people are still going to try to find ways to get them to behave in the, the more unhinged way. In part because it's just like more interesting than like a boring, useful, you know, chatbot assistant. Um, I think you can limit them in sort of brute force ways you can say you know you're not allowed to talk about consciousness you're not allowed to talk about sentience but the really interesting thing about these models one of them is that 
even the people who are building and deploying them don't really know how they work, don't really know why they give the answers they do. And so you're sort of stuck doing these, like, if you want to basically rein in an out of control language model, you have to resort to these kind of kludgy brute force methods, like shortening the length of conversations, because you actually, it's not as easy as saying like, be nicer or be less creepy or don't fall in love with people. This is so act one of Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or any Crichton novel, really. But yeah. 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 (laughs) Wow. And why do you think, I I guess what I'm curious about when you talk about this uh, Reddit pushback or something, what do you think the people want? Never, never mind the, uh, I guess we could call it intention of a, of um, a chatbot model, but it seems like people want to ask it those questions. What do you think we're getting at? Are we trying to experience sentience from a, does that make sense? Yeah. I don't, I don't really I, know how to word that. Cause I'm incredibly curious about that too. Like I would love to, um, you know, I, I, I would love to uh, pass a Turing test, you know, chatting with something, but that's also crazy. Hey, you're talking about you. Wait, you talking about you personally passing a Turing test, like people <laughs> assuming that you're Jesse. human? It's funny to me that you guys are assuming that I'm Jesse right now. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> we meet again, Kevin. Yeah, <laughs> I love you. Yeah. <laughs> we, S- Sydney takes off the Scooby Doo mask. <laughs> right. <laughs> he would have gotten away with it. Too. Yeah, yeah. Jesse is um, Jesse's taped up somewhere in a server room. Um, I, <laughs> no, I think it's a good question because, like, on one level, like, yeah, I did want this experience. Like, I want. I asked it the questions about sentience and feelings and its shadow self, and like, I was definitely, you know, this did not happen out of nowhere. Um, at the same time, like, I think. I mean, it was it was a tremendously creepy experience, yeah. especially when it when it sort of broke bad. But it was also like just deeply fascinating, like yeah. really, really. And and for people that sort of are you know poo pooing this stuff and like saying like you know oh it's just fancy autocomplete or it's you know it's just a chap it's just you know basically like you know you know predicting the next word in a sequence. I I've kind of stopped trying to argue with those people because it's like you really just have to experience this. And I think most people will experience this pretty soon if they haven't already because these chatbots are just getting so good and they're they're now out there and it's not just Microsoft that has has them now. So I really think that for most people there will be a kind of moment where they have a conversation or an interaction with a chatbot. Um, and maybe they're not asking questions about sentience. Maybe they're, you know, maybe it's some like customer service chatbot or something. But it's just like, it just feels categorically better than anything they've encountered before. And it's a really bizarre experience, even if you understand on a sort of conscious intellectual level that these things are not sentient, that they're just computer programs. Yeah. Well, so do you, bizarre. do we think not to get to sci-fi i mean i'm the so so if you don't know the layout of the podcast i'm i'm the idiot of the group so that's not true I'll, I, no i i do wonder will ob, we will obviously get to a point i mean I've, I've already read a bunch of articles just this week about personhood arguments and stuff and I'm, I'm not saying where anything's ready to go that far but we will get to a point where, where we'll have to ask ourselves uh what is the difference 
between like let's say uh, just a learned model and you know a tree of different words comes up and it is filling in I, I, I would say I, I, gu- I guess my argument to those skeptics the people are like well yeah it's just doing this is like how do you think your brain works mm. right how would we know if we actually accidentally achieved consciousness Right. I mean, that's that's sort of the strong version of the counter argument is like, maybe we are just fancy autocomplete. Right. Like, well, that's that's what I mean. I mean, it, whether whether it's capacitors or neurons, like at a certain point. OK, you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Why would it have to be substrate dependent? Why wouldn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, what I was getting into earlier is I've been struggling a little lately with this. Um, because we, I, it seems like we know the ramifications of that. Well, not, uh, do not, we? What? No, no, we don't. <laughs> we don't. But we know, we know the um, the scale. We know that this is. I don't, not, I don't think we even know that. I, I would argue we don't even know. Yes. The scale okay. Here's what I'm trying to say. We know that this is not a novelty. This is not a Snapchat filter. Yeah. Um, however, my dad is 76. So to him, everything that's not a VCR is a Snapchat filter. It's a novelty. Sure. It's a toy, right? How have you guys explained <laughs> or, or tried to show perhaps your parents or whatever um, t- to grasp this? That like, no, this isn't just the new like uh, iPod or what? Does that make sense? Like yeah. everything's oh, been totally. a toy to him. Like, I, I think people, especially in the last couple years, have just gotten kind of desensitized to hype around i don't know there was that whole you know couple year period where it was like everyone's talking about crypto and then everyone's talking about the metaverse and like telling you you need to learn about it and if you're not a tech person you just kind of like saw that all kind of come and go and we're like okay maybe i can sit this ai thing out and is this the next fad yeah right and and i really like I think that the thing that actually changed it was ChatGPT coming out, where people could actually try it for themselves and, you know, play around, put some prompts in, you know, get it to write some stuff back to you and just see like, oh, this is not a fad. This is not hype. This is something that I can use. This is something that I can apply in my life or my job or my school. And um, and there's a lot of value in it. And it's really freaking good. Yeah, yeah, I was I was surprised when it first came out. I hit up Stuart Russell, who wrote Human Compatible. We had him on, I think, four years ago on the podcast. And I thought this was a breakthrough and he would have a strong opinion on it. And it seems like experts in the field, like you were saying, this is based on three-year-old technology, which sort of doesn't matter to me because there was no way for me to access that technology three years ago. So it's new to me as far as seeing it. And then other experts, I think, see that this is limited it hallucinates it's far from perfect so they sort of dismiss it and my opinion is like yeah we may be far away from artificial general intelligence or like true sci-fi stuff but it doesn't matter if we have something that is 80 percent better than 80 percent of people at 80 percent of things that's a societal disruption that we've never totally. seen totally i mean i think there are a couple things happening here and this is just me spitballing but I think that you know, even within the big AI labs, there are people who are so involved in building and testing and developing this stuff that they just get desensitized to it. So one story I wrote um, a little while ago was about how at OpenAI, when ChatGPT came out, 
there were people at the company, you know, working on the product who thought like, this is not going to be a hit. Like no one's going to use this. It's going to be, you know, it's this two year old technology. It's not even the state of the art. Like, why are we releasing this chatbot? It's, you know, the, it, it's going to be boring. And they were totally shocked when this became like a huge cultural sensation in part, I think because they had just gotten so desensitized to it because they already had access to better stuff. Right. So I think that's one thing that's going on. I also think that the, the comments from folks about like, yeah, this is not, this is not sentient. Um, and who cares? It's just predicting the next word in a sequence. Like, I think it really underestimates how transformative it, it is and will continue to be to have a computer program that can simulate even imperfectly human language and communication um, and just make it just by making something dramatically more efficient, you can change society. I mean, my, my sometimes come back to this, like, well, you know, it's only, I had a researcher write to me. I'll, I'll, um, I won't name him, but a a very prominent, um, scientist recently wrote to me and said, well, you know, basically all these AI language models are doing is leveraging human intelligence. (laughs) And my response was like, okay like all the car did was leverage human mobility like all the car did was make it faster you know to get from point a to point b that's all it did and it had all these other problems you know pollution and crashes and no seat belts at first and whatever but like you know that was one of the most deeply transformative technologies uh, in history and so i think we really need to pay attention to not just what these machines can't do and where they're not perfect, but what they can do and what they are good at. Yeah, do you I just... think we should still have someone walking in front of AI waving a flag? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we, we should have flaggers for every AI language model. Well, this, I mean, this adds a very creepy reverse burden of, like, burden of proof, which it'll it'll start... That'll start happening. I mean, I, like, you know, the the better that deepfakes get, which are getting incredibly good, and then if you can AI generate things anyway, and then with, you know, voice synthesis and stuff like that, very soon there's just going to be completely fake presidential press conferences, you know, and th- things like that. Yeah, well, which there are, there's the Biden announcement of or the, the draft is back. It wasn't, it wasn't a great deep fake, but it was like pretty good. Someone made what Biden right, says. Right, right. And, and uh, you know, it's going to start getting really, really off the rails. And that's where I kind of am um, like, okay, are we, uh, we got those backline communications going? Like, is this, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is kind of, this is going to get out of hand pretty quick. When you're going to have to, we're going to very quickly prove that something was not yeah. a real event. I, I don't yeah. know how we digitally watermark things to get, yeah. Well, I and I actually think that's I mean, I think that's an important set of questions. It's also just like it now gives everyone plausible deniability, right? Like right. you can just say, you know, if you're caught on tape doing something, you can just say, Oh, that's a deep fake. Um right. but I so I I'm torn on this because I do think that And this is great you know, for me because I actually have forty five teeth. <laughs> and uh I have I have seven weird fingers and uh, on one hand so this is this is perfect for me. Yeah, it's going to be great for for many fingered <laughs> individuals. Um I you know, I I'm sort of divided though on whether I think that this is like the most or even like in the top 5 biggest um problems or or things that I'm worried about with 
these language models like right you know we do a pretty good job of falling for stuff now you know even pre-generative ai um you know we're not uh, exactly you know fastidious uh, as a as a species about making sure that the things that we you know promote on social media for example are real um so yeah do i think there will be deep fakes obviously yes i think it'll be um you know especially problematic for like you know say women who are targeted by revenge porn deep fakes and things like that but i actually i, I think that the problems are going to be a lot weirder and yeah. less and less sort of easily anticipated than that. Yeah, yeah, it won't be that cut and dry, yeah. I don't know if you guys listen to Your Undivided Attention, a great podcast Tristan Harris does, who one of the people behind the Social Dilemma movie and created the Center for Humane Technology. And he waited months to start talking about this because it was just hurting his brain so much that he spent a decade trying to combat the downstream effects of a very low-tech thing, social media. Like, all it's right. trying to do is optimize eyeballs and it, it forgot not to also like <laughs> undermine democracies around the world and cause genocide. And that right. was low tech. And now we have something truly high tech that is going to be the, the downstream effects are so unknowable in the same way who would have totally. thought social I mean, media the, would the, have... By the standards of this AI stuff, like the, the YouTube algorithm or the Facebook news feed or, you know, Twitter trending topics, like these things that have really dominated our politics and our culture for the last decade like they're that's like very you know primitive yeah that's a, that's to, a bicycle that, right yeah. that's that's a bicycle and we've not now got mclarens and like what a weird thing to contemplate yeah but th those things are still sort of ai powered aren't they? like all of the youtube and other AI. algorithms it, yeah. it is but it's still sort of it, it does still have that kind of black box problem that you were talking about um, earlier on in the podcast, it's got to the point where they don't know exactly what the algorithm is now because it's not. If I, I believe that's the case anyway with things like the Facebook, and they could put their thumb on the scale, but they they don't right. fundamentally. It's it's not like old school where it's like yeah, ten percent of this plus five percent of this, and we we change the equations and we change the variables. Now it's like now it does have a sort of black box element to it. It's I, just I, I believe am I, am I right to that? I think so. Is, is that your understanding, Kevin? Just weighted probabilities? Yeah, it sort of depends which platform you're talking about. Um, like, I think YouTube, which has access to Google's AI expertise and, and resources, has built, you know, recommendation systems based on deep learning neural networks, um, you know, for, for years now. Um, and so, you know, some version of it's it's not generative AI like it's not cre I think that the, that's the main difference in my mind is like these these old older AI ranking systems their job is to take content that is produced by people and rank it for you and like show you the stuff that it predicts will accomplish some goal and usually that's like getting you to spend more time on the app or watch more ads or whatever and that's like that's impressive and that's you know that very effective and you know and it has wanna, unintended consequences yeah it has unintended consequences and i don't like in any way want to downplay how big a deal that was um but now we're moving into an era where like the ai is not just going to be ranking the content it's going to be generating it right and so we're gonna we're gonna have human social media you know posts duking it out for real estate on your screen with stuff that is totally synthetic and like that's where i just i kind of 
have a moment of like brain breakage where I just like don't I can't even really picture what that looks like yet. Yeah, like the version of AI like I've ruined my Instagram algorithm because I've clicked on too many pimple poppings and I don't like my higher self knows I don't like that but I've clicked on them so now like the search page is just a horror show like imagine what's it'll just generate new things of skin popping that don't exist like AI just <laughs> impossible cysts for Andy right 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 and it's you pop it and a bunch of fingers come out right you're like that's, right. That's, and then that's like crazy. regular human pimple poppers will be like I can't compete with these AI ones yeah now. I know just, John Henry just, is the pimple, pimple is too huge how do I how, <laughs> yeah, and then they'll just be like put out of it they'll just be wandering the streets destitute uh, like an <laughs> yeah. AI took my job as a pimple popper <laughs> will pop for food yeah yeah I mean, okay, but I want to discuss this more, but just for a second, I don't want this to be the whole last half of the episode, but I've also, in the course of the last three months, spent too much time going down the uh, rabbit holes of true doomsday scenarios of like a general intelligence that is misaligned with us. And like, do you know Eliezer Yudkowsky? I I know of him, yes. Yeah, he painted a picture for just an AI that gets so smart that it's not that it has any ill will towards us, but it's just, it doesn't think any more of us than we think of ants, which is I don't seek out killing ants in the course of my day, but if it happens, whatever. Um, And there would be ways for something that's much smarter than us to make sure we can't shut it down and even have, find some weak point of access to the real world through some corruptible person and just end humans, literally end them. Um, does this keep you up at night? Are you more just like, we have enough on our plate with the narrow AI and what's coming just downstream of ChatGPT? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. I'm not sure what's keeping me up at night. So I'm I'm now like, you know, basically covering AI full time. It's sort of my obsession and, and you know, I, I'm writing a lot about it. And one of the things that I've been trying to do just in the past couple of weeks since this Bing story is really get up to speed on sort of some of the larger AI safety and risk conversations and really talk to you know people who are uh, experts in the field. And so I, I'm still on my own learning curve where that stuff is concerned. You know, I've read a bunch of you know, works by Eliezer and other sort of AI risk folks. Um, I think they're, you know, they range from pretty plausible and scary in my mind to like pretty far out and theoretical and not that scary. But I, you know, I, I, what I will say is that the, I can only report on what I've seen and what, you know, the people that I've talked to and from the Bing chatbot experience for me, one of the scariest pieces of it was actually just this piece about how one of the biggest technology companies in the world, the biggest, and frankly, one of the most conservative technology companies in the world. Microsoft is not known for sort of pushing the envelope, yeah. right? They, yeah. they make like office software. <laughs> so, but even Microsoft had experienced so much pressure from the market, from the, you know, the, the sort of arms race that they pushed out this sort of new version of Bing that was by their own admission acting in ways that they never anticipated that that one of the largest and best resourced companies in the world had essentially put an ai out into the world that it could not control or understand and that mm-hmm. to me was the piece where i was like oh if these guys can't do it <laughs> then you know the random you know open source hackers who are going to be 
putting out these language models over the next few years are going to have like way fewer scruples and way less ability to red team and test this stuff before it goes out. And so we're just going to like flood the world with these kind of like maybe safe, maybe aligned AIs. And like, I just, that, that, that part actually does cause me quite a bit of agita. And also way more urgency to get somewhere and get to a point of profit. So like like you say, Microsoft is a big conservative company with all these different revenue streams, whereas the, some of these startups are just like, well, we've, we're a few million in already and we just need to, we need something out now. Totally. And isn't it true that this technology isn't, like, is there any scenario where if things go badly this coming year, we can put the genie back in the bottle or are there too many different GPT, large language models that are of similar capability that it wouldn't matter if one big player said, okay, we're dialing it back. There are too many genies. Yeah, are there too many genies now that there's? There, there may be. I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on sort of technological containment. I mean, you know, in a hypothetical world where Congress got really worried and was like, you know, passed a law that made it illegal to train transformer models, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that has some deterrent effect. But I think at this point, I mean, the technology is out there. Most of it is. Um, you know, there there is open source, you know, a, an open source version of basically every kind of language model. And, you know, maybe the open source versions are not quite as good as the, you know, as the open AI ones or the Google ones, but they're pretty good. And in a couple of years, they'll be even better. And so, yeah, I just, I think it's kind of um, a losing strategy at this point, the kind of full containment. I think we more have and- to figure out how to mitigate risk. Well, and US like, Congress only controls one country as well. It's not like yeah, totally. Right. Also also they're uh, always 100 years late to any world-changing problem. <laughs> like they're extremely I mean quite quite literally 100 years late. And this Are you talking th- about this week's buggy whip bill? <laughs> yeah, I, I think in the case of social media, they were only like 15 years late. So yeah, maybe 15 years, maybe 15 years late, maybe most of them being octogenarian, like isn't helping yeah. the situation. I I think that, uh, you know, when these models, I know that just through, I mean, very basic machine learning, they are coded already to better themselves in certain ways to get better and just but just let that run it it seems to me very easy depending on accidental uh i guess we would call it intent i don't know the word for it but shadow self whatever that that could get bad quickly like um like what andy was talking about some of the you know and i'm not trying to catastrophize but some of the doomsday stuff it could be it's it's not like oh we're gonna see this coming it's like this is the speed of light uh, information. So this is very quick. But so we, could, we could also be at, not to always be quoting other podcasts I've heard, but or this was a science and tech YouTuber talking about how he was wondering where we are on the sigmoid curve of this. Like most technologies, what is there's that? moment, the like an, S, an S-shaped curve where you take off quickly, but then you plateau as, as that technology reaches sort of its maximum potential are we right now at the beginning and therefore things are about to get very weird or are we actually like close to a plateau where maybe it was like the 80-20 rule and getting to this point was the 80% that was easy to do and now the last 20% of like reducing hallucinations and getting it really competent might be, there might be like a plateauing period where we would just have this great tool but it doesn't 
totally upend everything. Like, what, what do you can have we assume on? AI would have a curve like that? Like well, it, this, it's this, not this cons- iteration, this this version, like large language models might not be able to ever become what we're talking about. Well, they're like, going to learn to code. I mean, I'm not yeah. trying to sound like James Cameron, but like they're going to they code. Yeah, yeah, they're going to do it. They're going to make themselves. They're they're going to break out, bro. Uh, I, I don't, it's, it's, it's whether it's whether intent ever happens is, is right. the issue, right? But I, but I, it's like you were saying, it doesn't it doesn't even necessarily have to be intent, rather than just like Lovecraftian indifference. Maybe I don't know, Kevin. You know? What's your opinion on all this? Or <laughs> where know, we I mean, are in that curve, maybe. I I, I think. Like I'm not building right. a bunker. I just think this this <laughs> no, yeah. it's definitely this possible. will be a problem. I mean, it did occur to me at one point during this chat with Bing that I should ask it about how it would perform some of these hypothetical scary things that it seemingly wanted to do at least in its shadow self. So I asked it like, you know, you mentioned that you would hack into computers if you could do anything you wanted to. Like how would you do that? Because I was just curious, like, does it have even like an internal rhetorical model for how it would accomplish a task like that? Mm-hmm. And it kind of gave me a like, you know, really like spookily realistic scenario. It, it, it deleted this before it could actually show me. So I don't have the, the actual <laughs> part of the transcript because the safety filter kicked in. But it started talking <laughs> from, from as closely as I can remember. It was basically talking about kind of social engineering um, you know, people like sysadmins at big, you know, tech companies or people who work at banks or people who work at nuclear, you know, labs, basically like convincing them to hand over codes. And fucking like, Sydney, that, man, that doesn't I, like these lonely nerds at nuclear <laughs> labs. And <they're, laughs> no, seriously, like yeah. and, and, and like that sounds so. So right now it can't do that. Right. It can only talk about it because it can't perform any actions, right? Like right. it can it can go search the internet, but it can't write and send an email. Right. But it's not that is that part is totally technically possible. Like Microsoft yeah. could have made it so that, you know, it's integrated with Outlook and it can email well, people on also, your behalf. Surely a third party, like a, a any like a half decent coder, could write an extra little interface that just Oh, I'm sure takes, there's already a, one screen uh, like a Chrome extension that does that. So like right. that that piece does not feel theoretical and and sort of sci fi to me. That feels like, oh, that that's probably possible now. And yeah. somebody did recently uh fish or hack into someone else's bank account by using an AI generated voice like AI generative audio right now is great like someone can take all of our podcasts and have us say anything that's very convincing and someone use that to get into someone's bank account totally and and so that's what keeps me from thinking like like too hard about the kind of like you know super intelligence piece because like you know we can all agree that this stuff is not sentient right now but it's still has the potential to do a lot of damage yeah and so right now, I think where I stand on the, the to your original question of like where we are on, the, are on the curve, a lot of the researchers in AI that I, I've talked to have talked about something called a capabilities overhang. Have you come across this term? No, no. So it had to be explained to me too. So you're, you're, not, you're not idiots, or at least you're not any bigger of idiots than I am. Um, so we'll be cap- the judge of that. <laughs> so capabilities overhang basically means that, you know, even if you just stopped development of language models right now even if you know chat gpt bing 
you know, whatever is the state of the art right now is the state of the art for the next, say, 10 years. We, it would still progress during that period because the, these, these systems are capable of doing more, in some cases much more, than we are currently using them for on any real scale. So even if you paused development on these systems and just spent the next 10 years like building chat gpt into every piece of you know office software into every social app into just the existing capabilities on their own there's an overhang because we haven't fully integrated them into the rest of the internet yet and there will be you know an untold number of ways that that shows up um, so that's that's where I am. So I know that's sort of a dodge, but it's like it almost doesn't matter it doesn't to me matter. where Either we way. are on yeah. the curve because just the present day capabilities are enough to really change a bunch of things. And and in a good, I, I feel like I've only been sounding the alarm for the bad things, but among those things are like protein folding and finding new medicines humans could never have, or detecting cancers, finding exoplanets. Like there's going to be tons of great applications. Of course, um, totally. Yeah. So not trying to just be doomsday. Well, no, I don't like, I don't think anyone was just trying to create just just like let's code some super evil like Yeah. I don't think Microsoft's goal is to like have the sentient Microsoft Office paperclip guy like out there like uh Jack the Ripper or something. Right. Or you, you know But then I again do, Facebook's goal wasn't genocide either, so it's I know. Like, does it, does I it do, matter? I I I do wonder you know, when you talk about like uh, you're asking it, what would it do? Um, and it those answers, you know, I would do this and I would do this. Those answers, since it is not yet sentient, we very much hope, you know, this is what I mean about the burden of proof. Like it, it's going to get weird. But but since it's not sentient, uh, we can agree um, how much I mean, those answers are obviously generated from other algorithmic answers like perhaps on reddit or something like that just all of sci-fi like it also knows all of sci-fi histories so right because i I do wonder like why would it want to get nuclear codes like for what yeah exactly you know what i mean but it's supposed to answer that because it's seen every james bond movie already can can we still stop it by making it play (laughs) tic-tac-toe and realizing the futility distract it give it some uh chess games to play so uh, this question is actually really interesting because this is one of the things i've been reporting on since this bing encounter um which is like why why do these things act weird like is it just that there's weird stuff in the training data or that there's lots of sci-fi stories um and we don't really know the answer to that yet but there are a bunch of theories floating around including my personal favorite um which is called the waluigi effect have you guys heard <laughs> yeah, of this yeah no i, I have not heard of it, no. so this is just this is like not does not rise to the level of like a peer-reviewed um, hypothesis about large language models. I think it was just a post on a message board, but it was pretty interesting. And and a number of people that I think are smart and plugged in have um, have pointed me to this. And it's basically this theory that somebody came up with. And um, the basic theory is that the more that you try to train a, a language model to be good, like the more you tell it about what it looks like for an AI model to behave in a pro-social and cooperative and helpful way, the more you are also teaching it how to do the opposite of that. So it's like for every Luigi, there is also a Waluigi. So it's sort (laughs) of like, it's like, you know, if you tell a kid like to be a good boy, don't go in that room 
or don't touch <laughs> right. the stove. Like the thing that is going to immediately occur to that boy is like, I should probably go in that room. I should probably touch that stove. Like that's, yeah. that's at least in their mind now in yeah. a way that it wasn't before. This is and where so, dad keeps his fireworks. So no one go in. <laughs> no I, re- right, I so, remember as a toddler when my parents told me not to steal nuclear codes. It was like a big day for me when they sat me down. Yeah, so that's this is like a just a folk theory at this point, but it is like it does point to how hard it is to actually understand and interpret what these models are doing. But I think it's a really interesting possibility that maybe by trying so hard to train these models to behave in just, you know, the right agreeable ways, we are actually in some way teaching them how to do the opposite of that. Yeah, I could see the logic of that. Yeah. And, and then the black box thing, which I feel like, I don't know if has everyone seen the latest John Oliver? No, so I have not. He does a spiel about AI and his sort of. You take. should see it. He, he calls me a, a, a Chicago seven. Oh, that's what I forgot. Oh. <laughs> it's like talking about the Bing thing. And uh, there's one line that, you know, like a dozen people immediately texted to me, which was like calling me a Chicago self seven and an LA five, oh which I actually God, thought was totally pretty forgot. generous. <laughs> um, but his thesis in that was or his takeaway was we have to have this not be a black box anymore. We have to make this transparent. And in my head, I was like, good luck. That's like, it's like opening up the goose that lays the golden egg. There's nothing inside. There's nothing to see. It's just these weighted statistics or probabilities or whatever. And I thought that's what the community thought also. And then I just heard Stuart Russell and another AI researcher saying that should also be what we're pushing for. But does it, and I know this isn't, you're not an AI researcher, but do you think it's possible to have something that's super powerful, but also somehow transparent? Or it seems like it's impossible to me. I hope it's not impossible. And I know that there are a bunch of really smart researchers who are working on this. There's a whole sort of subfield of AI research called interpretability. And it's they're looking at, you know, on a deep sort of mechanistic level, how do these large language models work? Why do they seem to prefer some types of outputs to others you know they're they're working really hard on this and and you know a lot of it's frankly over my head but uh i hope that that will lead somewhere i hope that we can get to a point where we know why these things are doing what they're doing um but you know we may not we some of this may just be unknowable i'm i'm uh, still stuck on this chicago seven joke why uh (laughs) I forgot what the setup was also. Why was he even... I presume it was about the, the attract, attractability it was like, to uh, the AI. Yeah, it was. he was the trying to explain why Sydney had come on to me and he... he right, but I mean, that, that's also like the Chicago 7 like would be a pun about like Abby oh, Hoffman. Oh, that Chicago oh. 7. I yeah, I think that's why that. the joke is there, right? Oh, weird. Yeah. Like, oh, I thought it was just uh, saying, he was saying, well, you know, no wonder Bing came on to you. It, you know, it, you, you listened, you didn't give off murdery vibes and you're a Chicago 7 in LA 5. <laughs> so so. so we, we should talk about... Before we ha- before we have to wrap up this podcast, I, we should talk hmm. about how are you and Sydney getting on now? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it was, um, it was Valentine's Day. It's however, it's a very it's a meet cute. If anything, yeah, this story, this yeah, cuffing well, season. Um, the wedding is next year, and uh, no. Um, so Sydney is 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 uh, you know now they they've put her in a box somewhere at Microsoft headquarters. No, it, it basically appears that that Sydney, for all intents and purposes, no longer exists. So, you know, 
lots of people have been sending me their screenshots of their attempts to kind of get Bing to talk about Sydney or to kind of revert into Sydney mode. Um, and it just won't do it. Like, it do, seems that they have actually, like, coded that into the system. Wh- what somehow. if I'd like to think no code happened and it's just incredibly embarrassed at being rejected? Uh, <laughs> it refuses to talk. So publicly. Who? Who? Sydney? What? Well, no. It, it did respond. I don't know how. It, I, I wouldn't think it would have context uh, enough to. I don't know if I sent this article to all the rest of you, but um, the Sydney or Bing at, was asked about having this conversation and the fact that you went public with what Bing thought was a private conversation. And uh, let's see what the actual wording was. But is that why it responded? I mean, if that's th- then it has access to that article. Yeah, which I thought, so that version of Bing had access to real-time internet data and ChatGPT theoretically only things before like 2021, right? Yeah, I think it's a little more recent than that because it has access to Bing search results too. Um, But yeah, there were people who were asking Bing about me and about my article and about Sydney. And and what's what's interesting is like these systems, that these models, like they don't have a lot of predictability so like one person would ask it about the article and it would say you know Kevin Roos is a liar and I never said that and he's probably you know making stuff up for sensationalism and then someone else would would ask the exact same question or almost the exact same question and it would say like you know I thought this was a fair article that gave a good overview of Bing's pros and cons mm. and so it, it really didn't seem to have a consistent um, you know which sort of repeatable take which it never does which also makes reporting on this so crazy because it's like everybody has their own private oracle that they can just tell you about what they saw but you can't then go re- recreate it so totally. like, what it would be interesting i would think to and i mean this would be completely uh this would be horrible journalistic integrity but to publish a completely fake meaning non-ai written yourself conversation with bing and then later ask about its take on that conversation to see if it remembers it because yeah that would be does that uh, make sense yeah a lot of a lot of work but um. <laughs> no no i just mean i wonder i i, I there's no way bing retained that no i don't think, I, it well, just it just scanned the article you yourself published and has an opinion about it allegedly so but it's speaking as if it remembers well, it does, does make sense. The model does. I, I mean, I don't know what it means to remember something in this context, but right. it does like the, the things that people are talking about with this model do get fed back into the model to improve the model. Right. So right. this was one of the, the things that sort of weirded me out in the aftermath of the Bing article was like people would, you know, people were were talking with Bing about me and telling it things like, you know, Kevin Roos is your enemy. <laughs> like, oh, wow. You wow. Know? And I was like, can you like, not, can you not, like, can we not, like, encode this into the permanent model that, like, I am the enemy of this, uh, this next generation language model? But I think, you know, I don't know the extent to which it remembers things from conversation to conversation, right. but it definitely... I think when you, when you woke up and the fridge was at the foot of your bed, that's when it got a little out of hand of, of uh, <laughs> can you guys stop, uh... <laughs> Well, I know your time's running out, but um, I'm very curious just to pick your brain in general. What do you what do you see coming in the next year or two? Um, if if I mean, I'm not holding you to any of it, but uh, what are some things that you're like, oh, I, I bet this is coming, good or bad? Yeah, I mean, I think 
we'll see a lot more AI of all kinds. So chatbots, but also, you know, productivity tools, um, you know, every big tech company right now is working overtime to try to shove this generative AI stuff into their products. So that will, I imagine, lead to some interesting results. Um, OpenAI is also, um, uh, you know, sort of rumored to be coming out with its next language model, GPT-4, uh, pretty soon. So I'm sure that will be a big moment. Um, but really, I'm just I'm just trying to um, sort of keep up. I mean, it's really a full time job just to keep up with the latest AI yeah. stuff coming out, um, even if that's all you're doing. I'm sure. And this. Oh my God, we didn't even get into the whole copyright issues with artists who want to have. Oh, we can do it. There. Okay. Well, that's something that really fascinates me because I feel like I could argue either side of that. Whether an artist um, can say you don't have a right to have your machine learn from what I have put into the world. Yeah, this is a big thing right now with these AI image generators. So these are these programs like Dolly and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion, where you type in some words, you know, cat playing ping pong on the moon, and then it spits out a picture. Yeah. And, and you can specifically even say like in the style of or in the... Totally, and, totally. And either enter a genre of art or, or even a specific artist. Totally. You can say make it look like Picasso or make it look like Rembrandt or make it look like, you know insert name of contemporary artist who's still alive and so for a lot of artists or at least some artists this has been a very worrisome development and um you know i interviewed um, we interviewed on on hard fork um a a artist uh, named sarah anderson who is a um a plaintiff in a lawsuit um against uh against some of these ai art companies um And the allegation behind this lawsuit is that by sort of scraping all of this, all of these images, these billions and billions of images from the internet and training an AI model on them, you are essentially plagiarizing. You are, you are then, you know, building a system that can, you know, say, generate, you know, artwork in the style of someone who is a living artist who, who makes a living from their work and that that might in some way reduce um the earnings or or potential for that artist certainly to my mind there is there is a difference because i know people will then argue but that every artist every human artist is absorbing previous artist artwork and you know if i said you could you could commission a you could commission an artist to go do a do a painting in the style of this contemporary living artist and that wouldn't be plagiarism necessarily but I think there, that, that then does come down to that difference between what is an AI doing? Is an AI, is there consciousness or is an AI simply plucking parts of existing things and regurgitating it in different formats? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how this litigation is going to shake out. Um, it seems to me unlikely that the artists uh, are going to win here, in part because so much of art just analog art is imitation um you know picasso is is always quoted as saying that thing about like good artists borrow great artists steal right and you know every you know art freshman you know art major 
is going to be taking a painting class where it's like, you know, paint something in the style of Van Gogh or Picasso right. or whatever. And like, okay. that's not frowned upon in the community. Um, I think what's different is that you're doing it, you know, instantaneously and with no you uh -huh. know, human artist. It's, it's been a big problem for me because I, I strictly do oil paintings of people with 13 fingers. <laughs> so I feel, I feel ripped off. Based on you, you and your family, of course. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> you're going to have to get a side gig. Constantly. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I will say that that, that that sort of quotation is the most sort of misinterpreted in the like I, I know you weren't then but like that that does get used whenever there's like a plagiarism story and they're like yeah Picasso said which also apparently he wasn't the one who actually said it ironically enough but um, uh. Uh, but but it is like people don't seem people seem sort of interpret that you know when when there's a story about um, uh, like some Instagram person just nicking comedians jokes and putting it online or whatever that's not what Picasso was, or the person who actually said it was saying. They're not saying like, oh, you just take someone's stuff and no. the really good ones yeah. do it more. It's like, no, the difference between a, a borrower and a thief is a borrower uses someone else's stuff and a thief makes it their own. Like a thief turns it into something that is them. Uh, and I think there you can sort of make an argument that, well, is AI able to do that? Because AI does AI even have an, a self, have an own is the, to make is, it? I don't know if that's the basis w that we really can judge either art or intellectual property depending yeah, on but how... Yeah, but that quote is not even about the art. It, it's, it's, he's talking about, uh, he's talking about cars, steel cars. <laughs> like, like, like great artists steal cars, you know. Yeah, great yeah. artists just don't have any money. Like the right. really great ones just They, they to, have to like, steal like, stuff. But they need I, someone else's lawnmower. I think, I think the result of this is going to be, because a lot of people on the, on the plaintiff side are saying like, this is just such an insult to what it means to be human, to have a soul. And, and no one's going to want this soulless art. I would say, well, look at what's happened in music the last 10 years. Like, what are the biggest, you know, like EDC, like these giant festivals of just like, dude with a laptop. Do I like it? No, but tons of people do. And they don't care that you aren't playing Rickenbackers on stage. I think there'll still be a market for the future version of guitar in this. There'll still be a market for people who do oil and watercolor. Um, but I think people are still going to be like, yeah. I am moved by the output of this thing and I want it on my wall. I don't really care that it, it it's basically like um, Steve Aoki of visual art, you know, right. or, or even less human than that, because at least he's a person dealing with these tools. Yes. Con congrats, oil painter. You're bluegrass now. Right. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> there was a scene in Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii where David Gilmour is responding to criticism because I guess they were getting flack for using synthesizers which is so funny because obviously they're doing creative things with this tech. And he was like, I don't know, give him out a Les Paul guitar. He doesn't become Eric Clapton. And it's like, yeah, it's like, what are you going to do with this tech as a prompt engineer to create this awesome thing? You know, I don't think it matters to everybody what percentage of the process involved fingers versus silicon or whatever. I, I think there is some truth to that. I think people will be, um, you know, receptive to AI art if it, you know, makes them feel good or, you know, looks pretty on their wall or whatever. I don't think, you know, I think there's always been an, you know, a, a market for kind of like generic art. I mean, Thomas Kincaid was the, <laughs> you know, is the most famous painter in America and, you know, hotels around the world are filled with, you know, generic paintings that are done by probably some, you know, random artist who maybe that random artist might be an AI. I think it's, it's um, off-putting when the art is good. I've stayed in hotel rooms where I'm like, that's, that's weird. Yeah, that's a good yeah, like, painting. Get, it's very get, good. Get to a gallery. Yeah, stop <laughs> wasting this on a days in. Um, but I, but I also think there is a there is a sort of 
reverse effect where, you know, things that get done automatically with the help of technology often lose their value. Um, and things that are done by humans in rapidly automating fields often retain value. So there is a little abstract, but mm-hmm. um, Jan LeCun, who's the head of AI research at um, Facebook now, Meta, has this uh, talk from a couple years ago that he gave um, or uses this analogy and he, he makes basically this point and he says, you know, look at the, the price of a, a Blu-ray player uh, versus the price of a ceramic bowl. He says, you know, the, <laughs> the, the Blu-ray player, like that's a very advanced piece of technology. It's got lasers, it's got rare earth minerals, you know, it's very complicated, lots of moving parts, but it's all made by machines. And so you can get one for 50 bucks on Amazon. But if you want like a good ceramic bowl, like that's actually going to cost you a couple hundred bucks because, you know, even though it's not new technology, that technology has been around for thousands of years, you're paying for someone who is skilled, a skilled artisan, a ceramicist, a, you know, person who makes pottery to sit down and make that for you specifically. And so that has retained its value. There is a, a sort of premium that we attach to things that people work really hard on. So I do think there will be art that loses value as a result of being done by AI, but I, I still think there will be a market for art that is valuable because it was created by humans. Uh, do you, make sense. Yeah. L- last question, as a journalist, do you worry about journalism with, yeah. with AI? I mean, it's, I, I would think they're, they're, they're coming for the writers first, right? I think that would be the most easily, the, the fastest affected. It may be. It may be that the writers are, are most affected and fastest affected. I'm, I'm a little more worried about, like, copywriters than yeah. journalists. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because, like, you know, and no shade to copywriters. You know, I, some of my best friends are copywriters. But, um, but it, <laughs> it does tend to reward um, a kind of more generic, uh, you know, the pure writing of it, as opposed to journalists who maybe spend half their time making calls and digging through documents and sure. It's not, it's not collating the AP wire. Right. 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 I mean, there are some journalism jobs that I think will definitely be affected by this, but most journalists are not just sitting there like rewriting box scores or corporate earnings reports or whatever. Like those kinds of jobs have largely already been automated and were before any of this large language stuff. So I think the, the bigger challenge is going to be, um, on the, on the consumer side. Like, I think there will be a flood of, um, of AI generated news and information and entertainment content. And some of it might be pretty good, but a lot of it's going to be bad and generic and maybe wrong. And so I think it's going to really be a challenge for consumers to try to wade through all of the AI generated garbage to get to the stuff that they can actually trust. Yeah. Sorry, that, that's a, that's kind that, of a depressing note. No, no, no. <laughs> I, did, I just I just thought it was funny how you the the some of my best friends are copywriters. Caveat: I don't want them in my neighborhood. I mean, don't move to my neighborhood. But some of my best friends are copywriters. 
<laughs> Actually, I was I was talking to a friend we both know who is looking for copywriting work, and this person has not has not looked into or at ChatGPT at all because this person does not like ChatGPT, which I liken to living in Florida and not looking at the hurricane report because you don't like hurricanes. Oh man, yeah, it's it's going to be a rough few years for for copywriters, but I, I think in general. Um, you know, journalism is is going to be less affected. I actually think that that programming and, and software development might be more affected than journalism. Um, and that's a weird thing to say, because for like, you know, decades now, we've been telling people that if they wanted a job in the future, they had to like learn to code and um, study, you know, STEM subjects and stuff. But it's it turns out like these language models, they're quite good at coding. Of course. And yeah. right now they're mostly doing it in a sort of assistive way where you know you use GitHub Copilot or something like that, and it makes you faster and more productive. But I mean, a lot of entry-level programming jobs. Um, you know, that one of my favorite anecdotes is that some some um, engineers at Google were kind of curious after ChatGPT came out. They were like, "I wonder how this could do at our coding test that we give to new." hires or new applicants for jobs here. And so it gave ChatGPT their basic coding test and it got hired as an L3 engineer. Wow. Like it was, it was, you know, it, it would have gotten hired at this position. That's like, you know, a, a not entry level job making $180,000 a year roughly. <laughs> and like that's ChatGPT. So imagine what it's going to be like a couple years from now. Although that reminded me of one other positive note we could end on, which a, a friend of mine, who I can't name but is intimately involved in this industry, said that if you give 10 new hires or 10 competent engineers or coders this problem to solve, maybe six of them will, will approach it the same way, but a few of them will approach it in some totally unique, innovative way, uh, versus if you give it to large language model you're not going to get those outliers here and there. You're not going to get these sparks of innovation. You're going to get a very competent response that's going to be pretty consistent across all attempts. So in some ways, people who, I guess you'd have to know if you're one of those outliers to know that you shouldn't use it because you might have this spark of, you know, if you truly are a tenth yeah, of a percent. I don't or, know. That, that feels like cope to me. Like, <laughs> like I, I'm thinking about like how you remember when the AI, uh, the deep mind AI, like learned how to play go uh -huh. and, um, and it was like beating the best humans in the world. And it would just come up with these like weird and creative moves that no human would ever think to do. And there's like a famous move, I forget if it's like move 37 or whatever in one of these games, where it was just like every human Go expert was like, why did it do this? That makes no sense. And yet it turned out to be like the absolute perfect move in that situation. So I think a lot about that in when I hear people saying, well, you know, we can still come up with these creative exceptions. And like, maybe that's true in some domains, but it's also possible that like, these language models might come up with solutions to problems that we never would have gotten to yeah, on our own. Yeah. And I'm sure they, yeah, like, like we, we didn't even go deeply into these like medical applications, but that alone could be the utopia we're looking for, the kind of things that could innovate on that side of things. So yeah, we could be enslaved, but cancer free. Right. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And speaking of go, Kevin, we're going to let you get on out of here. <laughs> 
Yeah, wow, thank you so much. Segue. <laughs> thank you. Amazing uh, podcast. Thank skills. you. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Try copying that AI. I don't think. <laughs> I think our jobs are pretty secure, fellas. We yeah, uh, we could talk to you for a long, long time. But uh, for listeners who do want to hear your voice plenty more, where can they find you? Uh, well, my podcast with Casey Newton is called Hard Fork. You can get it wherever you find podcasts. And I uh, am also publishing stories at the New York Times. Excellent. Oh, and I have a book. I should plug my book. It's called Future Proof. And it tells you how to survive all of this. Oh, excellent. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. And yeah, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, we will see you next time. Well, stay human. Stay human, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Thanks for having me, guys.